welcome back to The Drip. We are the podcast where academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when we are each still in our own homes. Because what we learned from the pandemic is that we can get a lot of shit done from the comfort of our own homes. <laughs> and also, shout out to all of our educator friends and listeners who are probably singing Beyonce's You Won't Break My Soul under their breath <laughs> as they prepare to go back to work this fall. Or maybe that's just me. I don't know. Anyway, no, it's a, it's I am Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Todd. My name is Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and expressive culture, folklore, and cultural studies at the University of St. Thomas. Awesome. Crystal. And I am Crystal Moten. I'm a public historian who works at a national museum in the Washington, D.C. area. Woo. All right. We are excited today to dig into a literary classic by one of the best American writers, Toni Morrison. While most of us are probably familiar with Morrison because of her novels, she also played a very important role in bringing African-American literature and writers into the American mainstream as the first black female editor in fiction at Random House in New York City in the late 1960s. She wrote her first novel, The Bluest Eye, which was published in 1970, by getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning while working full time and raising two children. I know. Wow. And, <laughs> yes. So shout out to that and shout out to all the mamas raising babies. Um, Sula, which is the book that we're discussing today, was Morrison's second novel and was published in 1973 and was nominated for a National Book Award. So before we get started, spoiler alert, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. As you may know, we call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective, so consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. So we read the same novel, but we all read sort of slightly different versions of it. And my version, which was I think from 2004, had a foreword from Toni Morrison. And I wanted to maybe start there because I think it sort of gets at one of the big things or one of the many things that we wanted to talk about. And in this foreword, Morrison says, um, conventional wisdom agrees that political fiction is not art, that such work is less likely to have aesthetic value because politics, all politics is agenda, and therefore its presence taints aesthetic production. And this notion of like that any work by, right, sort of a black author or an author with a marginalized identity is inherently political and therefore maybe less aesthetically valuable is sort of a question that I think keeps coming up. But I also think that it's sort of a question about, you know, what does it mean to be a writer, right? What does it mean to be a black woman writer and like how is your work sort of received? And I was actually just thinking about this this morning because I was listening to one of the recent Code Switch uh, podcast episodes where a comedian, Z-Way, referencing Langston Hughes' essay, The Negro Artist in the Racial Mountain, because I was talking about how, like, you know, even today, right, that there's kind of the same kind of tension faced by black artists about how their work is categorized and understood. And Crystal, when we were sort of chatting about the book before we started recording, you were, uh, you looked up some of the reviews of the book, and I was wondering if you kind of talk about, you know, sort of the first review that you read, which kind of came out when, you know, Morrison kind of wrote the book, and like some of the difficulties of like, talking about a book like this, A, that's like, you know, it's like almost 50 years since it's published and kind of thinking about, you know, what it means for us to read it now, but also just like maybe how it's been received and what that means for us to be talking about a book by somebody like Toni Morrison. 
Yeah, that's a really loaded and, and difficult <laughs> question. Also, um, because in many ways, we are we're reading Toni Morrison's book. Um, and we're also, um, I'm also thinking about her legacy and her vast contributions, right? And so I can't read this book without that also being in my mind and also shaping my response to this book. While I'm also trying to have kind of, um, trying to, to read and understand the book on its own, own terms, but I can't get Toni Morrison's experiences as a writer, you know, out of my mind. And so in thinking about that and thinking about or in wondering about how the book was thought of when it was reviewed, I, you know, I just did a little bit of research um, and I came up with a couple of different reviews. Um, and I want to uh, caveat what I'm about to say about one of the reviews is that, you know, this um, it really I want us to question, right, this review that I'm going to talk about, because it's not the it's not the be all end all. And it's not even probably the most important review of of this work. And I would no, I would venture to say it's not the most important review of this work, but it's going It comes from a source where uh, people think it's the most credible. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I looked up this review and um, it's from The New York Times. And it was published by um, a critic named Sarah Blackburn. And she published the review in 1973. And the book, um, the review is not only a review of Sula, but what I read it as is a review of Toni Morrison's work and her, what this reviewer sees her potential as in this moment. And so it's really a wider kind of critique of Toni Morrison. And I also think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Toni Morrison is trying to do. And so when, when, when I say that it's a broader kind of read of Toni Morrison, I say that because although this is a, a review of Sula, the critic just think she has to also give her opinion of the bluest eye in the review as well. And her her opinion of the bluest eye is to me negative and some of her critique seems a bit unfounded. But you know, I just think the 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 review is wrapped up in misunderstanding and bias and stereotypes about black women, black womanhood, and then what this author thinks the possibilities are for black women writers and what this author thinks the goal should be for black women writers. And so, you know, in thinking about all of that, you know, I have to, we have to be careful. I have to be careful because that's not the context that I want to be thinking about Sula in, but it's the context that Sula arrived in. Mm, right. Mm, and so then how do we um, then consider the work that um, Toni Morrison did and that Sula continues to do? You know, Crystal, this is like, this is like one of the questions of African American literature when you're when you're teaching and reading African American literature. I'm constantly sort of talking with my students about this and you can't just read books by black authors. It's true of 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 all books, but I mean particularly books by authors of color. You can't just read them without outside of the cultural context, outside right. of the political context, mm -hmm. outside of the social context. I mean, you got to consider all of those things. And when it comes to black writing in the United States, black writers have always been political writers. Black writers have always been doing something which is trying to write themselves into humanity. When Phyllis Wheatley, you know, one of the first published black authors, 
um, writes her poetry and she says, you know, remember Negroes as dark as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. She is talking about her ability as a black person to be considered human, a human being and a, and a refined Christian and just as good as anybody else, right? So from the very beginning, black writers have been doing this. They've been writing about their situation in these United States and even prior to the United States existence. So I think that's really important. And I think one other thing I'll just say about this is that Toni Morrison publishing this book in um, 1973, it's sort of like towards the end, but kind of like the middle to uh, second half of the black arts movement. Most people don't consider uh, Toni Morrison to be a black arts movement writer, but there's like this explosion of, of black women writers in the early 1970s that kind of follow or come on the on the um the the coattails of the black arts movement or and really our response to the black arts movement which is kind of a masculinist and exclusive mm -hmm. kind of movement but that movement is is explicitly and foremost political yes and it brought up a lot of these kind of critiques of black writing at the time this sort of idea that the you know this aesthetic this political aesthetic was not on the level of a kind of more universal and mm -hmm. apolitical aesthetic which of course we know doesn't really exist right and that's the that's the most important thing so when that critic is saying essentially why doesn't Toni Morrison, you know, transcend these sort of smaller, mm -hmm. uh, more specific issues of the black experience and write in a more universal kind of mode? What she means is why don't doesn't she write about white people? Because that's who matters. And that's something that critics said about black writers and black writing since the very beginning, right? Since the very beginning, because to them, black people's experience wasn't valuable mm -hmm. and black people's struggles didn't matter to them. And so I think, you know, that's a way that books like this can be dismissed or can be right. devalued. But I think what we, what you're also sort of getting at is, um, and maybe this is from our conversation before we started to record, There, we also each have, you know, our right to critique a work. Right. <laughs> regardless right. of that, right? So just right. because we're offering a critique of a work doesn't mean that our critique is in line with the critiques which are basically built on bias and dismissal right, exactly. of black experience, right? Right. So it's so interesting because she actually talks about, she brings up Phyllis Wheatley in her like foreword, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. she's like talking about how, right, that for like African-American writers, like there's like an extraordinary burden that's placed on them because like either their work gets read purely in a political and sociological way, right? That there's like the aesthetics and the like value of like writing and the value of, right? Like mm -hmm. that gets discounted and she says, um, and this is again from her forward, whether, and they, and they mean African-American writers, whether they were wholly uninterested in politics of any sort, or whether they were politically inclined, aware or aggressive, or the fact of their race or the race of their characters doomed them to a political only analysis of their worth. Phyllis Wheatley wrote, the sky's blue. The critical question was, what could blue sky mean to a black slave woman, <laughs> right? So I do think mm -hmm. there's kind of this interesting thing where it's like, it's a bind, right? And this, mm -hmm. in some ways, like we cannot ignore the race of the writer, or the race of the characters, or sort of the racial politics of a book that's written by, right, a black writer. But at the same time, it can't be reduced to that. And I think a lot of the times it is reduced to that, right? So we're not actually thinking about like the beautiful writing or the beautiful like right. yeah. plot development or the right. character development or like, right, right, just kind of like the aesthetics and like the other ways in which we think about writing. So mm -hmm. I do think it's that. And I think the only thing I wanted to add um, Todd, like when you were saying that, you know, they mean to write about white people. And I don't even think it's just that. I think they want like black writers to write about black people through the white gaze, right? Like yes. they want black people to be like yes. understood or like written about in a particular way that's way. like accessible to, right? Like non-black readers and to white mm -hmm. readers. I think mm -hmm. it's like not just like we want you to write about 
um, white people. Um, and I guess to build on that, maybe, you know, and she actually references this, and I feel like Crystal, maybe this was in the review, but she talks about, you know, why she sort of was like writing about in, she wrote this in the 70s, but the book is set, or at least it starts in like, you know, 1919 and 1920, and kind of thinking about like, what does it mean for black women to think of themselves? And this is from the forward, right? As our own salvation to be our best friends. And what could that mean in 1969? that it had not meant in 1920. So I was curious about, right, we're kind of reading this next year is the 50th anniversary. Like, what does it mean to read this book that was written in the 70s, set in the 20s, right? But we're like reading it in like 2022. So just curious about just any initial thoughts on that, right? Kind of how, what resonated, what didn't, like what do you think has maybe changed or hasn't changed about how, right, black women are perceived or like what freedom black women have or don't have to express who they are. Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting question, and it's one that that I'm grappling with as I uh, read this book, especially a book that um, you know is described as being one about you know an exploration of you know black women's friendships, black women's freedoms, but then also I mean especially when we think about the chronology and your um, just you're telling us of the chronology just now. It also makes me think about this book as a story of migrations, especially if you think about um, Sula's migration and what happens when she leaves and comes back. And so all of that to me is kind of caught up in opening possibilities for black women, right? That Sula could um, grow up where she grew up in the community where she grew up, uh, go off to college, you know, make her way across the country. I mean, she ends up in so many different places, including California, right? Mm -hmm. But then back to her hometown, a medallion, um, and all of that virtually alone, right? As a as a um, unattached woman, mm -hmm. right? And so that right there uh, signifies possibilities of Black womanhood, right? That we see in some ways are expanding even as they're trying to be contained in this book. And so I do see this, this black womanhood that is kind of reaching out and grasping for the ability to define and create for themselves itself, right? Um, but I also see that the society and the culture that Nell and Sula live in, even in terms of what's created by the novel and then what the novel, the broader context the novel lives in is still one in which black women are um, predominantly constrained in, in terms of education, in terms of economics and employment, in terms of reproductive autonomy, right? And so you see in Sula commentary on all of these major issues that we are still grappling with today. One example um, that just came to mind, and I'm going to not get the data right, but every year um, we have uh, Black Women's Equal Pay Day, and it's the day is based on when, you know, Black women's pay would be equal to kind of the standard white pay of a dollar. And this year, the day is pushed back, I think, six weeks to two months because it's taking that much longer right, for black women's pay to be equal. And so when I think about the possibilities, for example, of Nell, right, when Jude leaves the family and that $50 a month she was expecting in that envelope from his pay no longer comes and what she has to do, right? And then I also think about the way the pandemic has exposed caretaking and care work and it has strained the possibilities of black women's ability to take care of themselves and their families, right? These same themes and issues we are still grappling with if 
how we respond to them have changed. So mm. those are some of the continuities I see between yeah. then and now. Yeah, I love that. Uh, if I could, yeah, if I could say too, I mean, when I think about this character, I, I mean, I'm I'm always focused on Sula first and foremost. I just think she's a fascinating character, and I, I, I all you know, like all the things that Crystal was just talking about in terms of the difficulties or the challenges of being a black woman in you know society, whether it's 1930 or 1973 or 2022, those factors have changed over time. But what she just said attests to the ways that they have have not changed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and certainly mm-hmm. have not changed enough. You know, mm-hmm. and I love to think about Sula as a character who recognizes some of these things. And then just sort of like she recognizes the way that the game is rigged and refuses to play it. Right. Like to me, she's a character who embodies refusal. And that's what I love about her so much. I mean, I think about this book. This might be why I wanted to read this book, but I I compare it a lot to uh, Jamaica Kincaid's book, um, Lucy, which is a, a centers on another character who basically just like refuses to play the game. Uh, ex- social expectations of her, uh, economic expectations of her, whatever. She just sort of refuses to do it. And people think she's evil. People call, I mean, her name is Lucy, like Lucifer, right? Like, it, and you get that in this book. I mean, yeah. there's there's definitely, when you hear the voice or, or the, yeah, the, the, the voice of the community, mm-hmm. they are talking about Sula as evil, as embodying as evil, as a witch, right? But that's only because she refuses to live life the way that they expect her. She refuses to work. Right. She refuses to work. And yet somehow she gets by, right? Um, she sends her mom or her grandmother to the old folks' home. And uh, everybody hates that. She has sex with other women's husbands and basically just anybody she wants to. She's sort of like unbridled, like she can't be contained. Right. And then I think maybe the biggest thing is she does not feel any remorse for what she does. And that really ticks people off, right? But that's a kind of like free way to live. Now, sure, everybody can't live that way, I suppose. Maybe we'd have like a total chaotic society if everybody lived that way. And yet, at at the same time, what she does, she reminds me of like how we would talk about a trickster in folklore. Tricksters do things that not everybody can do in society, but they define the boundaries of like what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, right? And so by some ways their their behavior which is which breaks all the rules actually defines what the rules are for a community to actually function properly. Mm-hmm. You know? And in that mm-hmm. way they should be like admired, even though they do the things that are shocking, right? Even though they sometimes mess up your spot, you know. So I think like that's part of what I really admire about her. And I think like that idea of refusal is one that has gained a lot of traction in the last few years that people are writing about and people are thinking about and just refusing to be limited or refusing to be constrained or refusing to be defined. Yeah. Uh, black women especially comes out of black feminist thought and theory. That's right. Right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, people refusing the people pleasing aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think about that in terms of Sula is going to do what she wants. She's going to tell you how she feel. And she just without without any concern for pleasing you because she's pleasing herself. Yep. I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned, Crystal, about how like now after Jude leaves, like what is her like economic condition and how is she going to like take care of the kids? Because that just actually made me think about. Um, I think, and I mentioned this in the foreword, right? So uh, Morrison says, female freedom, sorry, female freedom 
always means sexual freedom, even when, especially when, it is seen through the prism of economic freedom. And I was just thinking about this notion of like, just like, you know, I think when I was like rereading this book and I was like thinking about what like Sula sleeping with Jude and I was like, why does she do that? And then when I came to her explanation, like it made so much sense to me. And I also thought about how like in my own head, it's also sort of still this like conventional thinking, right? Like you don't sleep with your friend's husband, like, cause it's marriage. And it's like, right, this like sacrosanct sort of like thing. And, and this is like Sula's explanation for it. And this is on one, oh, where, oh 119. And she says, Okay, so she says she had clung to Nell as the closest thing to both to both another and a self, only to discover that she and Nell were not the one and the same thing. She had no thought at all of causing Nell pain when she bedded down with Jude. They'd always share the affection of other people, compared how a boy kissed, what line he had used with one and then the other. Marriage, apparently, had changed all that, but having no intimate knowledge of marriage, having lived in a house with women who thought all men available, and selected from them with the care only for their tastes, she was ill-prepared for the possessiveness of the one person she felt close to. She knew well enough what other women said or felt or said they felt, but she and Nell had always seen through them. They both knew that those women were not jealous of other women. They were only afraid of losing their jobs, afraid that their husbands would discover no uniqueness lay between their legs. So I just thought that was like, I was like, yeah, right, right? Like Sula was like not caught up in these like conventions of like what marriage means, what like it means to be like, you know, I don't know, being a monogamous relationship, but she didn't do it out of spite, right? Like she wasn't like, oh, here are your boundaries and fuck your boundaries and I'm going to do this in a deliberate way that's about that. But it's for her just like this like amazing like reconfiguration of like relationships and especially the friendship, right? And this idea mm -hmm. that she didn't think that Nell would mind right? because she and Nell had like shared everything before she had gone away and before like Nell had settled into, I guess, a more conventional life. And I just found that like, I think it just also just like made me kind of be like, oh yeah, like a lot of the ways in which I think about relationships honestly are also very conventional in some ways, right? Even though I think of myself as like, you know, whatever, right? Sort of a queer thinker and sort of like thinking outside these bounds, but then it's like so easy to get caught up in like how we think about other people and how we think about whether what they owe us and like what we owe mm -hmm. them and like, mm -hmm. you know, sort of what it means to like be with somebody. I think, yeah, and that, oh, go ahead, you go ahead. I was gonna say that connects exactly to how, to Sula and Nell's conversation that they eventually have about mm. this moment in terms of, right. you know, what Nell thinks Sula owes her because of, you know, the depth of their friendship. But obviously, you know, they they had different ideas and thinking. And I think one of the parts of the book that I really wanted more of is actually to know more about how Sula came to her thinking and understanding. Because I think some of this this thinking happens when she's away, right? 10 years mm -hmm. or so, like, it, it, you know, and so we get a really good sense of the development of, and I guess the oneness of Nell and Sula. But there's, there's, there, there's definitely something that happens when they're apart that changes how they think about themselves, how they think about themselves in community, and how they remember and think about their own relationship that we don't really see into, but we see the effects of when Sula comes back. And so I just, I mean, so thinking about the earlier question about, or the implicit question about what we thought about the book, one of the things that I was really, my critique is that I wanted more of Sula when she was gone. And maybe that's, you know, the opposite of what Toni Morrison was trying to do in terms of, you know, make this a book about 
being in this particular place and when Sula is in this place. But I think there's something that happens. Um, the, the experiences Sula hap the experiences that Sula has when she is gone also constitute who she is because she comes back right with these understandings and expectations that yes they may have been forged you know in medallion but something happens and i want to know what <laughs> I, I fan think... fiction <laughs> right right <laughs> i this is really interesting to me and i'm like thinking the word paradox keeps coming up to me again and again because mm. A lot of people have talked about this novel in terms of it's like doubling, um, you know, these sort of pairs, uh, yes. um, this kind of like double meaning or whatever. And I think like also important is the way that there are paradoxes in this book. And I think one of those paradoxes is what you were kind of just talking about, Crystal, right? Like you wanted, like when you were talking about, I wanted to know more about what happens when she's away, or even people might say, I want to know more about the relationship that develops between the two of them why if we are supposed to accept that this is a deep you know unbreakable relationship that that's what nell just realizes in those in the last pages of the book where it where did that come from like i need more of that right and so i was thinking of like uh, i was thinking of the color purple mm. uh you know with sugar avery and and uh what's the name of the main character i totally forgot her name uh, i can't remember right now but anyway their their relationship you see it in the book right like you get that yes. scene where sugar avery is like teaching her you know gives her the mirror and like look at oh seely seely yeah seely and sugar yeah Yes. And, um, you know, like that, that relationship really gets drawn out. We understand mm -hmm. the connection between the two of them. And it, it's a it's a queer relationship. It's not no one can deny that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This one is much less uh, for us to kind of chew on. We get like this really beautiful scene between the two of them at the beginning of the book. But it's right before they kill a kid, <laughs> you know, and then after that, then you get very little um, kind of like intense scenes between the two of them, maybe once again. But then the, you just like, I think I, it's sort of shocking when um, w when Sula just disappears and doesn't come back for what, 15 years or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yes. It is the puzzle is like even why she leaves. I guess I don't I don't know if they to go to college. Like I thought it was just right, to, go right, to, to go to college. Yeah. Right. So yeah. maybe that was just it. But mm -hmm. I do. I mean, so it's like chapter that's uh, 1922. Right. Like that's okay. the like one chapter where we like sort of get a glimpse into the friendship and right. Yeah. Like we're basically chicken little. Um, and I think it's just like such a rich chapter because there's like so much going it's on. It's beautiful. There, right? It's yeah. it's so beautiful. I mean, um, I didn't mean to interrupt the, you. But oh, I, yeah, go you go ahead, you go ahead. I'll talk after no, you. No, I was just going to say, but it's also like all these things that happen to Sula before she leaves, right? And you were kind of getting at that, right? Like this notion of like her identity being forced, right? I mean, she literally mm -hmm. hears, it's in that chapter where, you know, she goes in to like use the bathroom in the house mm -hmm. and basically she hears her mom say yes. to another mom, right? And this is on 57 in my version. So I can't exactly, so the other person is saying, I can't say love is exactly what I feel about like the husband, I think. And then uh, Hannah says, sure you do. You love her. Like I love Sula. I just don't like her. Uh, that's the difference. And then like Sula <laughs> basically like, here's that right going in. And she says like, um, she only heard Hannah's words in the pronouncement that sent her flying up the stairs in bewilderment. She stood at the eye, fingering the curtain edge, aware of a sting in her eye. And I don't think she ever talks to Nell about that. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that comes up much later in the book is that I think she witnessed Ava like pouring gasoline on her uncle and like killing him because she says right mm -hmm. ava did mm -hmm. that 
And then Nell's like, well, you don't know that. And she's like, no, I do. Right. I watched it. Mm. Right. And then that's another like, one of those uh, those paradoxes. Right. Like, why yeah. does she do that? She does yeah. it because she you loves him. Ava. She Ava. kills right. him. Yeah, she Ava kills him because she mm-hmm. loves him. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, you know, so this is like the things that that uh, Sula is learning. Right. As she is growing up. Right. And yeah. I mean, like, I think about that moment when she hears her mom saying, I love her, but I don't like her. And it's like, at the same time, it's a devastating moment. But it's also like, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I can understand that. Like From kids a parent get... perspective? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a parent or anything, but kids be getting on your nerves. You know, I got to think there was, a... I know there was a time when I was a teenager and my mom didn't like mm-hmm. me. I know. <laughs> I know it. She must have, when I came in the door, she must have been, oh my God, here he comes again. Yeah, but how yeah. would you have felt if you actually heard your mom say Maybe that? I should have heard that. Because <laughs> may, my problem was, I thought that her love, you know, that there was nothing I could do where she would put me out or she would get uh, so upset with me that she would turn her back on me or whatever, which was probably true. But maybe I should have, like, known that right now you're behaving in a way that I, I don't care for and don't really want to be around you. You know what I'm saying? Now, I know what, I know what, what, uh, Hannah is saying is like deeper than that a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. Children like they take your stuff and they don't thank you for it. They're always there under your feet. You know, like I'm just saying it's a lot as a child to hear you. I was gonna say we gotta say that though. I don't know, man. Maybe they need to hear that. Uh-uh. You, uh, Larry. <laughs> so anyway, I was, yeah, I was trying so to figure out how old Sula would have been. Do you, in that chapter? In that she chapter. That? When she heard that. Was she 12? 11 or 12 yeah yeah that's a kid you don't want to hear that that's too young oh come on you guys are babying these people well they're babies, they're babies. she just killed so she killed somebody real quick accidentally, after that accidentally accidentally she didn't kill him i mean that was i mean she to. threw him in the water and then no, didn't get him his hand slipped uh-huh. well i was unclear about that i was trying to like read that and i was like what was happening because it we come back to that because when Ava like tells Nell right. at the very end, like you watched versus like, and right. she was like, I just saw, saw. versus like witness, which I thought was like really interesting. And I thought mm-hmm. that was, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could What's it? That. Yeah, no, I think that's an important uh, distinction, right? Yeah. A distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was also just like, so how I understood it was like, she was like twirling him around. Right. Like the hand slipped mm-hmm. and he kind of like flew into the water Yeah, and they expected him to like come up. But right. my thought was like, did any of them know how to swim? Like, is there anything they could have done? Probably and the one not. thing that Sula tried to do was to go get an adult. So right. She went to like Shadrick's hut and he wasn't there, but then she doesn't say anything. But is that why she went to his hut? Like, didn't she go to his hut to so? make sure he didn't see? See, that's what I thought she went yeah, to his hut. I think she right. just went to see if he saw it or not. Because, I mean, if you're going to look for somebody to help, you go to Shadrach of all people. No, she uh, wasn't going true. to get help. Okay, she was just going to... I think yeah. she was. They were afraid that he saw, and she went to see, see if he saw it. Saw it. Right. And then remember, right. after that, Nell says she says we should tell someone. It's Sula who says oh, right, we should tell right. someone, and Nell says no, nobody saw it, so right. there's nothing anyone could have done, yeah. you know. And that's what you know. Eva saying at the end that you watched. You were you did. It's just like you did it too, right? Mm-hmm. And I think right. you know, go yeah. coming back to my kind of like paradox uh, idea. It's in this moment, and then. Once, uh, when Eve, when uh, uh, Nell gets married, that's the it's the next day that Sula leaves after mm-hmm. Nell's wedding, uh, right? And it seems to Nell that they have gone on these two different paths, right? right? Paths, yeah. Um, that divergent paths, but I think what Eve is trying to tell her in the end is that you didn't, right? You didn't. You were actually sealed on that together on that day when you watched. Right. Yeah. When you participated and I don't think she's even saying like she doesn't say you guys are bad 
or you mm-hmm. murdered someone or anything like that. She just says, if you think you're different, that you're not different, right? And that's when Nell think Nell goes, oh my God, uh, this is what Sue was kind of trying to tell me the whole time. This is what, you know, that our closeness, our connection really couldn't have been disturbed by, you know, this thing that she did with my husband. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening. And I'm not saying, I don't think it's right or wrong. I just think it is, you know, and I think that's the way that I want to think about it, you know. I think it's interesting to think of Nell and Sula as on this this intertwined journey because I and I guess where my mind is going is if they're on this intertwined journey and we see what's happening, but they're on this intertwined journey. Toni Morrison is, is showing us clearly, especially in the, in the last portion, the last portions of the novel, what's happening to Sula. But all we see is Nell kind of just like floundering Mm -hmm. alone until she hears that Sula is ill and she goes to Sula's bedside. And so I'm just wondering if their journey is intertwined, they still see, is it because they are creating themselves an artificial divide between them two? And that's why we can't see them as connected? Because I'm I'm just struggling with the, the intertwining of them when that's not actually how the story right right it's written. like what you were saying before right like yes they're yeah. they're intertwined but they're totally separated right, right? But i think like, that's how i understood like sula's take on what happened right like she was she understood them as intertwined and then she was mm-hmm. actually surprised that nell reacted the way she did right and i think it's sort of in some ways to her she then blames like this convention of marriage right and mm-hmm. what that means and that right. Nell has like bought into the conventions so in some ways in some ideal like not ideal but i guess in the world that like sula would live in like she and Nell would still be friends right she and Nell mm-hmm. would have like like Nell would have been fine with her sleeping with jude and they would have just continued their friendship right and the fact that it's like not intertwined like the fact that there's like this rupture okay right? Okay, is because of like sort of the societal conventions and the ways in which we're like taught to think okay. about right. like our relationships with like men or our relationships with friends. Like I guess that's how sort of I read Sula's like surprise at the fact that they weren't intertwined. Also, right? Like she's like she sort of also imagined because there's like that whole description of like when you know she comes back and she's like hanging out with Nell and they, you know there's kind of this idea that they fall back into this like easy friendship right that they're mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. laughing so hard at something and one of the kids yes. comes in and says what are you guys laughing at and it's like we can't even really explain right because it's right. just like so much history and so much like yes. context to like why we're laughing and why mm-hmm. we're sort of having this so it right. seems like right it was actually like right so she left but she came back and it seemed like their lives were still like intertwined in the same deep way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know and there were a lot of reasons for why they were intertwined including the fact that right they saw yeah. little dies right so it's like mm-hmm. complicated in terms of like right. why their lives are intertwined but i think it's sort of this idea that for me like sula was kind of like yeah like we should have just stayed that way <laughs> right like okay. even though i slept with jude even though right like that for her that shouldn't have been the cause she, of the like on 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 whatever yeah yeah she says sula says on 145 she says it's when she's sick and nell is questioning her and she basically says you know you didn't love me enough to leave him alone to let him love me you had to take him away and she said what you mean take him away i didn't kill him i just fucked him if we were such good friends how come you couldn't get over it now like admittedly that sounds cruel right (laughs) right but it within a certain context i think i mean Mm -hmm. within the way of sula's thinking it's not cruel at all it's just a statement of like reality and then 
You know, Nell says, you lay in there in bed without a dime or a friend to your name, having done all the dirt you did in this town, and you still expect folks mm-hmm. to love you. And this is like, I love this part. She says, Sula raised herself up on her elbows. Her face uh, glistened with the dew of fever. She opened her mouth uh, as though to say something, then fell back on the pillows and sighed. Oh, they'll love me, all right. It'll take time, but they'll love me. Mm-hmm. After all the old women have lain with the teenagers, when all the young girls have slept with their old drunken uncles, after all the black men fuck all the white ones, when all the white women kiss all the black ones, when the guards have raped all the jailbirds, and after all the whores make love to their grannies, after all the F, I'm not going to say that word, get the mother's trim, when the Lindbergh sleeps with, when Lindbergh sleeps with Bessie Smith and Norma Shear makes... It was step and fetch it after all the dogs have fucked all the cats and every weather vane on every barn flies off the roof to mount the dogs. Then there'll be a little love left over for me. And I know just what it will feel like. Mm, Like, I'm like, whoa, (laughs) whoa, whoa, the audacity to say something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's what she is. Like she is audacity personified, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because she is not. I mean, it's more than not being polite. It's more than not, you know, having consideration for other people's feelings. Mm -hmm. It's about refusing to be constrained by a social system around gender, around race, around whatever. I mean, she, the truth is like, she doesn't even care that Nell came to help her out. Nell thinks that she should feel thankful that she even came to help her. I mean, Sula would have just died in the bed. Like she didn't Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. She just didn't care. And she still ends up dying in the bed alone. And doesn't care. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. Yeah. And I think what she's one of the things that she's saying to Nell is this is not about morality. This is not about who's who's good and who's bad. You know, uh, it's not about the things that you think it's about, right? And I think she's trying to tell her that, right? And at that point, Nell can't really hear it, and it's only I think in the end of the book where she where she hears it. And then when she says that, you know, girl, 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 which I love so much, right? Which is like calling out Mm -hmm. to your friend a kind of like solidarity that transcends space and time Mm -hmm. that's the realization you know that it's more than this it's more than these things that have you know tried to determine how we would be in the world with each other Mm. and and it takes me back to you know when we were talking about you know i think i said oh let's talk about this book as a queer book but you anitas basically said no it's it's a book that queers Right. right. Like, that's, And I yeah, think that's, that's the way to yeah. think about it. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's not so much that Sula is a queer character. It's a it's that her attitude queers everything around her. Right. Right. Meaning that it changes it or distorts it in a way that can be freeing and liberating mm-hmm. that that liberates her from this kind of existence that's about being constrained, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, I, when I think about that and and the, how this book is, is queering, it's, it's act is an active Querying. It's not just only in Sula, right? I, I was thinking about that in terms of Eva and the household that she creates, right, with all of the various different types of people that live there and their ability to just live the, the kind of life that they want and that still be their home. Now, Eva has done some some pretty evil things in her time, um, but, but seeing that household as, um, you know, a space of possibility, especially as Toni Morrison sets up Eva's household as a contrast 
to Nell's household and how kind of difficult and confined Nell felt in her own household, but then being able to go to um, Sula's place and and experience some form or some measure of of freedom there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess you're thinking, like, whether or not we think of Ava's actions as evil, I think it's, like, an interesting question. And mm-hmm. I was kind of thinking, actually, mm-hmm. so this is all related, but I was kind of thinking about kind of the role of death, right, in the book. Because I was thinking about, mm-hmm. okay, so if, like, Sula is kind of, like, you know, this person who, like, bucks morality, like, right. fears this notion of morality, but she's, like, dies, right? She's, like, dies young. Like, how do we think about that? But then I was mm-hmm. thinking about, like, in Ava's perspective, like, her killing Plum was, like, liberating him right so like mm-hmm. are we thinking about death right in some ways as like an ultimate liberation because i was all thinking mm. about the fact that like shadrach is like going around celebrating right like national suicide, suicide day, day. Suicide day. <laughs> right. um, and so it was like what is you know so there's like that like framing of it and, and you know we haven't even talked about him right and he's kind of this yeah. big character but i was thinking about that right like what it because initially i was like oh like what does it mean to like kill off this character who right. you know sort of like is like this like unconventional sort of person but maybe mm-hmm. i'm thinking about death in this like conventional way too right like because mm-hmm. i think you know like the way that chapter ends like sula's like watching herself die right like it's right. kind of this like really interesting mm-hmm. sort of moments and and i think for at least from how i understood ava right because there's like that parallel of her literally putting her finger up plum's like butt right to like mm-hmm. release him mm-hmm. from the constipation that he was like suffering from and i was like i think for her it's like a parallel right that she was like releasing plum mm-hmm. from this like life that he was living that maybe she thought wasn't worth living so yeah i don't know like i was just kind of thinking about the notion of death right and like how that comes up and like whether uh I don't... whether like a, like a death of like your soul or a death of like your freedom is like worse than like actual death no, I think that's a great point, right? I mean, I think that's a great point. It, it It's like similar to the contrast that um, Crystal was just saying about, you know, between Nell's household and, and, and Sula's household. I mean, one is clean and one is safe and one is uh, buttoned up and, and, you know, the food is good and everything. The other one is chaotic. It's dangerous, uh, but it's but it's alive, right? It's alive in a way that Nell doesn't feel alive in her own household. And and I think, you know, just to your question, Anita, you know, Sula doesn't even, I mean, she knows she's dying, but she says her last line is, wait until I tell Nell. Like she's still alive, right? And then we know that in terms of her impact on the community, she's still there, right? Like, yeah. like in fact, her, her, her physical absence causes the community to basically disintegrate right but they still think about her she's mm-hmm. still she's still present in their collective consciousness right and it we re, you know they realize and we realize that it was her refusal mm-hmm. that was actually holding everything together, together. right and right. that it all sort of begins to fall apart but i think i think you're right i mean i think that if we think about everything sort of conventionally in this novel, what we'll come away with is a wrong reading of the novel. Yeah, You'll get, you know, we were talking about those reviews and I, I told you guys before we started recording that I was reading all these, you know, individual reviews on Google and people, there were lots of really outraged reviews. Like, this is a terrible book. Like, mm-hmm. how could we, why would we even spend time on such an evil character and this, that, and the other thing and people really just outraged. And that's, I think that's because those readers are not sort of taking the time to sort of arrive at the point where you realize that things are sort of warped a little bit and, and I don't mean warped in a negative way I just mean like change from your expectations yep. in some ways up is down right mm-hmm. where do they live definitely where right. do they live on <laughs> right. top of a mountain that's called the bottom. the bottom exactly right up is down and down is up right 
And so for all the sort of elements, a lot of the names, a lot of the definitions, a lot of the things that we're thinking about and encountering this book, we got to think about them differently than we normally would think about them yeah. because that's what's happening in the novel and in, in the community that it represents in, in the book. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, I don't think there is actually, I actually don't think there is one way to think about death in this book because we have so many versions of death, so many ways of, I mean, it, it really, in a lot of the chapters, that's, that's what we're grappling with. What does it mean to be dead while alive? What does it mean to, to actually die, but then your memory is still floating around, right? What does it mean that, you know, for, especially with the last celebration of National Suicide Day and you have the community marching toward that bridge, which signifies in many ways the death of people's economic dreams for their lives, but then they perish, some of them perish within that protest, right? And so, I mean, there's just so many ways to think about death. And I think, yeah, thinking about death is not the ultimate ending is is kind of what I've been pondering but but what what do these deaths allow us to see mm -hmm. right about the community it, that they're it, happening in yeah. and if i could add to that i just think i totally agree with you and i was thinking like that storytelling itself adds to that kind of extension of being right because we are reading a novel that in which like the narrative to a certain extent gives space for the community itself to tell a story about these characters and their response to these characters and then within the story you know there are all the stories that characters are telling each other about Sula and and Nell and all these characters Shadrach and whatever so the kind of like the storytelling and the the way that that knowledge about these people is being conveyed both to other characters within the novel and to us i think allows for this extension of the existence of the people beyond right. themselves and beyond their lifetimes, I guess you might say, but even beyond like where they are, you know, because like stories, this is the thing that you always, what I learned as a folklorist is that stories can travel faster than people can, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they can keep on going when the person the story's about is long gone. We still tell stories about Stag Lee, Stag Lee been gone for a long time and you can name person after person after person, figure after figure after figure, and the stories still are strong. And we're right. still reading this book, and, you know, Sula's gone, Toni Morrison's gone, and we are still reading this book, and whether, you know, how it hits us in 2022 might be a little bit different than it would have been in 1973, but it, I think we can all three agree it still hits us. Right, totally. And I think that is a great place to end. Yeah. So rest in peace, Toni Morrison, and thank you. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to go around and talk about what we've been reading, listening, eating, whatever. And also, like, um, one of my things I'm going to share is that somebody at a check-in meeting, like a check-in at a meeting asked, like, what's been our summer jam this summer? So if y'all want to maybe answer that along with whatever else, that would be cool. Todd, are you ready to share? Yeah, I don't really have a summer jam. <gasps> you know, I'm, fi I'm finding that the older I get, like, the less time I have to, like, know what the summer jam is like i guess you're I mean, talking about my, be, it could be like an old my one. own person you know what i'm listening to in my yeah. car right now is like a collection of new orleans music from the 60s oh, wow. and it's it's really good it's like you know it's all kinds of that's like music from jam. the 60s i guess that's my summer jam in terms of what i am uh watching so i'm i 
I don't have anything that I'm reading right now because I'm preparing for school, so I'm reading all stuff that I've read before. But I have been, this summer, watching Queen Sugar for the first time. Oh, wow. First time, Tom? Yeah, I didn't. Ooh, I, time. I mean, Yeah, so I started watching this that summer. Time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, uh, and I have to admit, like, I started watching it when it first came out because a lot of people were telling me, you got to watch it, you got to watch it. It's about land, you know, it's about politics, it's about all this stuff that I'm really interested in. And I think I watched like half of one episode and I was like, uh, this is too soap opera for me or something like that. I had oh, some okay. feeling like that and I kind of didn't go back to it. But I started watching it again, and uh, I get it, everybody. I get it. I, I'm I'm on board. I love it. Ralph Angel is my Hollywood's really my boy. Yeah, Hollywood's my boy. I mean, Hollywood. I love Hollywood. I mean, what a great, great por- portrait of a black man. And yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I just love it. I'm only on season two, so don't anybody spoil it for me. Even though we're called the Spoilers Collective. And also, the show's been out for a long time. But right. they're they're coming out with their final season. Yeah. In this fall, so yeah. I'm trying to catch up so that I can watch the final season with everyone. So I'm I'm on board, everybody. I understand. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Oh, can I say one oh, more thing? Yeah, of course. I'm sorry, I forgot about this. I meant to say this. I did. If you remember in the last episode, I said I'm going to see Nope. So I did go see Nope. Okay. And. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I nope. Mean, nope. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Nope, I'm not gonna but... say nope, but I mean, and it was like there were some really good things about it, yeah. but also nope. Yeah, like kind of like shorter. I feel like maybe there's there's just like a half hour where I'm like, what is this? Why? Okay, here's what I feel like is happening with Jordan Peele's movies, and you know, I'm old. In a minute, I'm Todd. cantankerous. Okay, in one minute. What I think is happening is they're getting gamified. Like it's like oh. you, you watch the movies, and it's like, can you figure out? where all the easter eggs oh, are and what all the things okay. are and that's the, interesting you know and it's like it's so much so that it's like it goes over the top yeah. and i'm like just do this part you know yeah. that's yeah. what i always feel like concentrate like that on that right yeah and and I, of course a lot of young folks love it because that's like kind of what their life is it's like let me figure right. this stuff out and let me crack the code and everything and I don't want to really crack the code. I want to watch a good movie. Exactly. And it had elements of a good movie in there. Yes. But I feel I like guess. it came up somewhat short. I think I'm with that. Yes, also, yes. I just love Kiki Palmer, but that's a whole other Yes, thing. I love her. Very good. <laughs> yes. That's a good uh, analysis. Thanks, yeah. Todd. Wow. All right, Crystal, what have you been up to? You know, I um, I turned in my book two months ago, and I've Woo! just been having a, yeah, a hard time concentrating on book length things except for this book but yeah so i'll share the summer jams all right summer jams of course lizzo's album special has been on like repeat since it came out but then also this past week maybe it was uh within two weeks a new album by chastity brown came out and it's called sing to the walls and the funny thing about this album is that i heard one song on kind of like a new music playlist and i was like oh let me let me go figure out this artist and listen to more of her and so i get the album i listen to the whole album i'm like oh i love this artist why haven't i heard of her before and so i searched my library and i have five of her albums So (laughs) apparently I love her, but I have forgotten. And so she's like a Toni Morrison novel. (laughs) Exactly. Get to talk about that. (laughs) Exactly. So Chastity Brown, Sing to the Walls is the album. So cool. 
Um, yeah, so I guess my answer when somebody asked that question was, uh, she's not, this album isn't new, she's just an artist that's new to me, but the song called Runaway by Maimuna Yousaf, and hmm. it sort of has this like vibe to me that's kind of like Janet Jackson's Escapade, which I oh. also love, it's like my favorite yes. song ever, so yeah, yes. listen to Runaway, it's just kind of like a fun song to like blast as you're mm-hmm. driving down the mean streets of Minneapolis. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also the other thing I've been watching on Netflix is this new show called Mo which is about this like Palestinian American family who lives in Houston. And there's like a whole oh. thing about they're like applying for asylum. And it's been like 20 years because they're like case mm. gets, you know, and, yeah. and it's like really sweet and funny. Although I have to say, I just finished it. It kind of veers off into this like crazy plot scenario at the end. But overall, I really like it. And I feel like I hope that if they have a next season that they kind of focus back on the characters rather than this like kind of outlandish like plot device that they ha- end up having in Interesting. it. Maybe just to be like, try to be funny. So, mm. um, but I also feel like it's just a perspective that at least I feel like I don't tend to get a lot, right? And this is guy who like grew up, you know, so they were refugees in Kuwait and they like moved from Kuwait to the US because of the Gulf War. Um, and he's kind of growing, growing up in this like super diverse, like, Houston, you know, Houston. And so he like is fluent in like Arabic, Spanish and English, right? Wow. Like, yeah. like equally comfortable in all of that. And I just mm-hmm. feel like in some ways it speaks to the possibility of like what actually diversity can be like and look like and, and to have like solidarity between like different kinds of people. Um, so all of that and just, I don't know, with the plot, just ignore it because it's their first season maybe and they're trying to get their footing. <laughs> so, right. yeah, so Mo and Metflix and then Runaway by Mumaina Yusuf. All right. So to wrap up our next book, we decided to kind of stick with the classics by a literary giant, but in a different uh, genre, I guess. And so Genre. Genre. <laughs> so reading Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. And at least I know I'm going to try to read the book and then watch the movie as well, which stars um, Denzel Washington and who was the other actress? J- Jennifer Beals. Jennifer Beals. And just maybe kind of think about, you know, sort of translation from book to movie. Uh, but Todd, do you want to say anything about Walter Mosley? I know you, I feel like you've been getting, like, asking us to read this for, like, a while. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, Wal- Walter Mosley is like the probably the most famous uh, black writer of of detective fiction and mm-hmm. crime fiction. Mm-hmm. He's written five, I don't know how many, like 100 books or something. <laughs> I mean, um, a he's a very, very productive writer. He's written, you know, like on the corner. I mean, he has a lot of, uh, of series, book series um, that center on some of them center on particular characters. Some of them don't. He's written some like Afrofuturist stuff. I mean, just, uh, but a really great writer. And uh, yeah, you know, he's been doing it for a long time. So we're gonna finally read one of his books. We're really excited to read. And and I think it's gonna be like a slightly new genre for us. I think it'll be kind of a fun, we could talk about genre, which you know is my favorite word to say and talk about. Um, All right. (laughs) So thank you all for listening. As always, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places they can find podcasts. So please stay safe. And for those of you starting a fall term, good luck. We're with you. And (laughs) good luck. You know, what is that whole uh, good luck? Goodbye. Good night or whatever. Good night. We're wishing you the best. Um, and yeah, we'll be back in a few or next month, I guess, with Walter uh, Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. Bye, y'all. Bye. You've been listening to a brand new episode of The Drip recorded from St. Paul, Minneapolis and Washington, D.C. Our show is written, produced and directed by Anita Chikatur, Crystal Moten and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri. And we'll be back in October with a new show on Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other.